All right, Jesse, I still can't get over last week's two-parter episode and bonus interview with the incredible author Joni West. What do you got for me this time around? A perfect on-paper couple's secrets are revealed after one spouse is gunned down only days before Christmas. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Hi, Andy. Hi, Jesse. <laughs> Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about unexplained changes, family discord, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. And as always, if you enjoyed this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app. Subscribe and review to help new people discover the show. I also really want to thank our discussion group on Facebook for coming through this week. So yes, thank you guys. You were so wonderful. I really like love each and every one of you. And I and I think I try to tell you every day. So thanks again. If you haven't joined the online support group, uh, <laughs> aka the Love Murder Discussion <laughs> group on Facebook, check it out. But we have some other exciting news. We told you last week that we were going to Crime Con, and now we are doing a Crime Con ticket giveaway. You get a ticket. <laughs> you get a ticket. You get a ticket. Okay, well, actually, only two people get tickets, so let's not get crazy here. That's right. At the end of April, Andy and I will be in Vegas for what promises to be a super cool event, and we would like at least two of you to join us. That's right. I stand corrected. We're doing a giveaway with two tickets to CrimeCon. We'll put in information about how to enter on Instagram and Facebook. It'll be super simple. If you have any questions, you can always hit us up as well. To enter, all you have to do is do an Instagram post about this week's episode, tag at lovemurderpod and at crimecon, so we know you want to enter, and so we get notified, and then we'll randomly select one winner to get two standard passes to crimecon. Yep, and for anyone who comes out, we're also going to be hosting some sort of meetup. We were thinking, you know, like cocktail hour at a cute little bar, so um, details of that will be announced soon, so stay tuned. Yeah, and we're going to have some special guests too. I know that Bob Mata from Defense Diaries told me that he'd come. Okay, cool. Amazing. I'm, there's so many other podcasters who I'm so excited to meet. Our friends Daphne and Heath at Going West yep. are going to be mm-hmm. there. We're so excited to meet them in person. I feel like we've been friends for years and haven't ever gotten to meet. I know Daphne is such a doll. She reached out to us like our first week. Like that is so, so, so sweet. Like she is just a great podcaster and a good human. So yeah, so hopefully we'll get to meet some people and maybe at our meetup, there'll be some surprise podcaster guests. I'm super excited. Yeah. Okay. So Andy, we have been talking for the longest intro of all time, and I know we usually are getting right to the story, so I think we should jump right in now. It was a festive and happy night at the Fox and Hound restaurant in Raleigh, North Carolina. Only eight days before Christmas 2000, a small group of colleagues from a local psychologist's office gathered to make merry and celebrate the upcoming holiday. At the center of the party were 
Marty and Michelle Fear. The young, attractive pair were high school sweethearts who had grown into a power couple. Good-looking brunette Michelle had just turned 30 years old and already held a doctorate in psychology. The gathering was her work party. She had dressed for the occasion. An uncharacteristically goofy Christmas sweater adorned her body, the Santas and stars shining in the dining room light. She laughed and poured herself some wine, offering a glass to her husband, who politely declined. Marty, who was a trim, athletic 31-year-old, happened to be a captain in the Air Force, and he never drank on nights before he flew. He had been hesitant to come to the party altogether due to his early morning the next day, but Michelle convinced him like she was wont to do. He even wore bright red sequin suspenders and a Christmas tie to be a good sport. The party wrapped up just before 10.30 p.m., and Marty and Michelle dropped off another couple at the parking lot of their office in Fayetteville. After stopping to get some gas, Michelle remembered that she had left some reference books on her desk that she needed for a college psychology class that she was teaching the next day. Marty gamely turned the car around and returned to pick up the books. Michelle's office was on the second floor of the building, and she dashed up the external stairwell to let herself in. Marty waited in their red Ford Explorer, going impatient as the minutes ticked by. Eventually, he got out of the SUV and began to climb the stairs to see what was taking so long. As he ascended, he heard gunshots ring out into the cool, dark night, the stars glittering as vibrantly as the sequined suspenders that he was wearing. Two blasts, a pause, two deafening blows, once more, a pause, and then one last shot, the punctuation on a deadly sentence. For a few long moments, the world was silent, and then the screaming began. One member of this couple wouldn't make it out alive. And the shocking murder would reveal a sordid web of infidelity, lies, illicit internet lovers, swingers parties, and eventually a good old-fashioned flight from justice. Whoa, Jessie. Yeah, this one's got everything. It is a classic love murder here for you lovers today. It is lust, love, and betrayal most foul. This is a double recommendation. Sweet Amanda, Amanda A, I love you. She recommended this over a year ago, and then she pinged me again this January and was like, hey, just checking back in. Are you guys ever going to cover this case? So Amanda, we finally delivered. And also recently, I know he prefers I use his Instagram. So Roma Eterna 20 also brought it up in the discussion group recently. And a big thank you to Nancy as well, because she put me on to the Michael Fleeman train, who is the author we are using this week. The book is called The Officer's Wife by Michael Fleeman. There is a Scorned Love Kills season four, episode one about this. And you know how I love a Scorned Love Kills. And then I'll bring up a blog post later, but I don't want to give anything away. All right. So let's get back into it, shall we? Um, I think we definitely should. (laughs) It's a good one. It's a juicy one today. Michelle Forcier was born on December 9th, 1970 in Denver, Colorado, the first of three children born to her homemaker mother and her Air Force father. The Forciers divorced while Michelle was in her teens, and her father's prolonged absences, compounded by her mother going back to work to make ends meet, resulted in Michelle becoming a primary caretaker for her two young siblings, which, of course, forces a kid to grow up pretty fast. Mm -hmm. I guess her younger sister was like 10 years younger, so she really was in like a miniature mommy mode rather than an older sister mode, you know? Totally. 
So yeah, she wasn't able to participate in extracurricular activities and she wasn't exactly the most social kid due to her responsibilities at home. But when she met Frank Martin Thier, who went by Marty well in high school, she decided to make an exception and see where that relationship could go. Marty was born on February 26, 1969, a year older than Michelle, 16 to her 15 when they met. Marty felt an instant connection to Michelle, in part due to their somewhat similar circumstances. Marty was also being raised by a single mother who worked long hours as a nurse, though his maternal grandfather was also very involved in his upbringing. Marty's biological father had been out of the picture for pretty much his entire life. The senior Frank Martin Thier was schizophrenic and his mental health condition made it impossible to rise to the challenges of fatherhood, unfortunately. Due to the strong role models in his life, mother and grandfather though, Marty grew into a responsible, kind, and goal-oriented teenager. He was absolutely great with Michelle's siblings. He often babysat and he helped her out around the house as well. His mother said that from the moment that Marty laid eyes on Michelle, he never even thought about another girl. So cute. Super cute. So it was a no-brainer that they would stay together after Marty graduated high school ahead of Michelle and enrolled in the U.S. Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs. Every weekend, he would make the 70-mile trek home to spend time with Michelle. When Michelle graduated the next year in 1988, she joined the Air Force Reserves while attending the University of Northern Colorado. Two years into college, Michelle volunteered for five months of service during Operation Desert Storm, and she received an Air Force Medal for meritorious service. Both Marty and Michelle were now a credit to the Air Force, so it made perfect sense for the lovebirds to get married at the Academy's chapel only days after Marty's graduation. The newly minted First Lieutenant Marty was 21, and Tech Sergeant Michelle was 20, beaming at her sister, who described the wedding as a fairy tale. It was a truly special ceremony. One of Marty's Academy classmates wrote later, watching the two of them together reminded us all of the goodness of life. Oh, Oh, man. These are just like two great kids that kind of had a, a hard time growing up and made good, and now they're serving their country, and young and in love. (laughs) Clearly all going to go hideously wrong. So keep listening. (laughs) For the first few years of marriage, Michelle and Marty prioritized his career. At the beginning, Michelle was content to be a military wife, happily moving to whatever base or training program Marty had been assigned to. So they ended up living in Oklahoma for a little while, then Denver and Colorado Springs. And the time that was spent in their home state of Colorado was a pretty happy one. The families actually got along pretty well together and they would end up like celebrating Thanksgiving and Christmas all together. Both Marty and Michelle attended the University of Colorado. Marty was working on his master's while Michelle graduated magnum cum laude with a BA in psychology and sociology. Wow. She was the first person in her family to get a college degree as well. That's incredible. When Marty finished his master's, the couple moved to Melbourne, Florida, where Marty was stationed at the Patrick Air Force Base. This was another great time for the two. They had a house with a pool, and they took full advantage of all the outdoor activities that Florida had to offer. They went scuba diving, paragliding, and skydiving. So fun. Super fun. Yeah, if you're in Florida, why not? Take advantage of it. (laughs) Michelle took on academics just as enthusiastically as she tackled adventure sports. She earned a master's degree in clinical psychology from the Florida Institute of Technology in 1997, and two years later followed it up with a doctorate. Like, damn, girl. 
During those years, she volunteered at a rape crisis hotline and led therapy groups in prison alongside seeing patients at a local Florida clinic. Eventually, Michelle and Marty began to spend more and more time apart, and the once solid marriage began to show hairline fractures. This was because Marty was often deployed, and they also had to spend what ended up being like a few months apart in separate states while Michelle completed an internship in Alabama and Marty was transferred to a base in Georgia. So the couple was reunited in 1999 when they moved to their sixth city in eight years, Fayetteville, North Carolina, where Marty was stationed at Pope Air Force Base. Though Michelle found work at a psychology practice and taught at a local college, she never truly warmed to Fayetteville. She would have preferred to stay in Florida, where she she just loved, you know, the ocean, the beach, the activities, of course. Or she would have liked to move back to Colorado to be closer to their families. She was also growing frustrated with Marty, who was fastidious about cleaning and expected her to be the same. For his part, Marty didn't understand why Michelle wasn't willing to start having children like they had planned. Both were now entering their 30s, and he thought that the time was more than ripe. Okay. Michelle disagreed. With Marty's deployments and her own career, who was supposed to take care of the kids? She said maybe if they lived near her family or his family, it would be doable, but Michelle couldn't contemplate the responsibility the way things were, which is understandable. Totally. Yeah. Tensions rose to the point where Michelle gave Marty an ultimatum in the summer of 2000. Either they would attend couples counseling or the marriage was over. So Michelle later said that Marty didn't want to go to counseling. So she ended up signing a three-month lease and moved out. But they did end up going to counseling. So I don't really know, like, if he said no, and then she moved out, and then maybe he said yes, you know, because he was like, oh, shit, I might actually lose her. So she called the break a temporary therapeutic separation, and they did end up starting couples counseling a few weeks after she moved out. Okay. In September 2000, Michelle's lease was up and the couple reconciled, moving into a new home together. Family members believe that the couple was healed and even focusing on the future with potentially Marty's retirement and children, which was on the table if Marty retired from the military. Okay. The holiday season seemed to be one filled with joy for the reunited couple and promises of a new future. And then the unthinkable happened. So we are back to December 17th, 2000, the night that Michelle and Marty went out with her boss, Dr. Thomas Harbin and his wife, as well as Heidi, their office manager and her boyfriend. While Michelle was in her office and Marty was ascending the exterior staircase, shots rang out and one of them died. But who and why and who again? Who do you think died? I mean, I would guess Michelle, but because I would guess Michelle, I think it might be Marty. At 10.57 p.m. that night, a 911 call was made from a Video Hut movie rental store about 200 yards away from Michelle's office. Just minutes earlier, the video store had been about to close for the night. The last of the employees were finishing in the office when they saw a distraught woman at the front rental desk on the security camera and heard her screaming for help. They rushed out to where they found Michelle Fear hysterically asking to use the phone to call 911. She was still wearing her Santa sweater, but her shoes were missing and she had blood all over her hands and face. After she placed a tearful emergency call, she rushed back to the office where at the base of the staircase, Marty Fear lay in a pool of his own blood. A good Samaritan discovered Michelle cradling Marty's head 
and found that he had no pulse. Air Force Captain Marty Fear had been shot to death. Wait, why wasn't she wearing any shoes? So basically she had been wearing some type of heel and she took them off to run so she could go get help. And apparently she ran first to a gas station and it was closed. And then she saw the video hut and ran over there and they were minutes away from closing for good. It was a miracle that she got their attention. Okay. When the police and paramedics arrived on the scene, Michelle explained that she had been in her office when she heard the loud gunshots. She rushed outside, and from the top of the stairs, she saw Marty lying on the ground. Michelle said she wasn't sure, but she thought she may have seen the gunman go through the low hedges at the back of the building. On the other side of the hedges was a country club and a golf course. While the police called in a canine unit to follow the potential murderer's trail, Michelle was questioned and the neighbors were canvassed. One neighbor described the pattern of the gunshots as bang, bang, pause, bang, bang, pause, which indicated to the police that the perpetrator had some sort of weapons training as it was the sound pattern of a technique called the double tap, which I think we talked about this in the Orange County murder, remember? Yes. And it's basically a a technique in which you shoot one shot and then you immediately shoot again because it helps you to refocus. For some reason, the second shot is usually more accurate. Yep. And then you take a break, refocus, and do it again. So yeah, Michelle recounted the night's events to the investigators, as well as an overview of the fear's marriage, including the fact that they had suffered a pretty rough patch over the summer, but had reconciled in September. At 3.30 in the morning, after her hands had been tested for gunpowder residue, she was allowed to go home where she gave her bloody Christmas clothes to a female officer, took a sedative, and fell into a deep sleep. I honestly, like, don't know how. Like, you're supposed to, like, go sleep. I have no idea what I would do. I would call you, and then I would be up like a crazy person until Until you somehow— Until I get there. Yeah. (laughs) Until you arrived, and then I would sleep. (laughs) Yeah. 100% that is what would happen. While she slept, the crime scene was processed and eventually Marty's body was autopsied. Marty had been shot five times. One bullet had gone through his left forearm and into his chest. Another struck his lower back. One hit his right buttock and yet another entered his left thigh. The killing blow was likely the fifth shot to the back of the head. The gunpowder burn indicated that Marty had been shot point-blank execution style. Yeah, but it took five tries for him to do it. So he has some sort of training, but... Yeah, but I think that that's also evidenced by the training is that it seems like the attacker got closer as he was shooting. Got it. Like he kept... He was advancing upon Marty as he shot because the last shot was point-blank. They recovered two brass casings for a 9mm Luger at the scene and surmised that the killer had taken the other three with him when he fled. Marty's hands were tested for gunpowder residue and they were negative. I mean, I don't think you can shoot yourself in the back of the head and all those other places, but they still tested him. It's nice that they're being thorough. Bright and early the next day, the police interviewed Michelle's boss, Thomas Harbin, because he had been out to dinner with a couple the night before. And what he told them would blow the case wide open and very much challenge the picture of the happily reunited couple that Michelle had painted for the police. Harbin said that the couple's marriage had been troubled as long as he had known Michelle. In fact, she had even suspected Marty of having an affair when they were living in Florida. She told Harbin that she was getting pressure from Marty to have children, and this wasn't something that she wanted to do ever, really. 
But most importantly, Harbin reported that Michelle had confided in him in November that she had been having an affair with another man. Okay, so they're both having affairs and lying. Yes. Well, we don't know about Marty because she could be lying. But her boss is saying that she believed he was having an affair and that she definitely was. It's also a lot to like confide in your boss about. Like what happened to like keeping your personal shit to yourself? Yeah, I don't think that's like something you should do in a professional setting. Oh, no, no. I'm definitely guilty of it. I like to tell everybody my business and that's why I work with you now because I can tell you my business. Yeah, I'm like the perfect coworker. You are my perfect coworker. Thank God. Yeah, that is a lot, a lot to tell your boss. There was some speculation that she and her boss might have been a little close, wink, wink as well, but there was no proof about that. That was alluded to, but I definitely don't know if that but was this is, even This is like the type true. of stuff that you only tell your your someone over like a couple cocktails. Exactly. So they were uncommonly close, but I yes. don't know if they were like, yeah. you know, playing hide the sausage, hide the salami close. <laughs> he believed that the other man's name was John and that he was a soldier at Fort Bragg, but he could not recall his last name. Oh, and there was one more thing that Michelle had told him about her affair partner. He was in the special forces, trained as a sniper. Okay. At 9.30 in the morning, armed with this new information, Sergeant Clinkscales returned to Michelle's home to question her further. A bit groggy, Michelle did cop to the affair. She said that her lover was a soldier of 27 or 28 named John Diamond, but that the relationship had occurred while she and her husband had been briefly separated and discontinued after she and Marty reconciled. She said it was the only extramarital relationship that she had had, but it was totally over, though the two still occasionally spoke. She said that he was a really good mechanic and she had this old Corvette. And so sometimes they caught up about it and he gave her advice about her car. Totally. I do the same. (laughs) When pushed, Michelle also admitted that she had a half million dollar insurance policy on Marty. Stop. Uh Uh-huh. Which is just about $816,000 in today's money. So- there's a couple motives right there and a pretty good suspect, I'd yeah. say. Are the cops like, uh-huh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, well, we solved that one in 12 hours. <laughs> so who is this maelstress wrecking the fears home over here? Mr. Diamond. It certainly is. Mr. Diamond was a 28-year-old army ranger and sharpshooter who was described as tall and handsome, though I didn't really see it. I don't know. He was over six feet tall with a muscular build and apparently fancied himself quite the ladies' man. John had grown up a military brat, much like Michelle and Marty, whose dads were both in the Air Force as well, but was raised largely in Texas. He joined the Army right out of high school, and he was stationed in Panama in 1998. And that's where he earned his sergeant stripes and gained a wife. He married a beautiful local Panamanian woman named Lourdes, who was seven years his senior. The couple welcomed a baby boy and moved to North Carolina in 1999. The investigators interviewed John, and he also admitted to the affair. He said that it occurred while both he and Michelle had been separated from their respective spouses. He and Lourdes were getting divorced now while Michelle had gotten back together with her husband. He said that he had known Michelle was married the whole time because they had met on an online personal site where Michelle had gone by the screen name Married Brunette. Ooh. 
No, she's spicy. She's putting it all out there. This is what she said about herself and what she was looking for. Sexy brunette seeks rendezvous man. Attractive, intelligent, very sensual professional. Seeks regular activity partner two to three times a week for long, hot, passionate encounters. And she's like 30. I think she was 28 when she posted this ad though. Okay, amazing. I mean, not amazing because she's married, but. Yeah, definitely not You know what I mean. (laughs) Kind of like amazing in that. The audacity, yes, you know? Yes, yes the, the incredible audacity of this woman. Like, did she think no one was going to find it? I know. Well, I think that's why she was looking for somebody that was even potentially married themselves because they would be more discreet or wouldn't fall in love with her. So that was kind of an angle. Like, she, like, led with the married stuff because she was like, I don't want to get any complications here, you know? Well, babe, going to get complicated. <laughs> <laughs> indeed, indeed. Yes. Okay. So she is looking for, get ready. This is a long list of things she's looking for. Looking for emotionally stable, very attractive, physically fit, intellectually stimulating, fun loving man who is not going bald, 25 to 35, Caucasian only. Okay. Also rude. Very rude. Drug and drinking free and needs to be over six feet tall. Wow, she is specific. Very specific. Can be hung like a shrimp as long <laughs> as you have all these other things. Oh, oh yeah, she's gosh. a picky one. And, you know, I have described her as attractive, and I guess she is attractive, but I don't think she's attractive enough for this laundry list of things that she requires. I just don't understand. I mean, I guess she is just looking for like a like a toss in the hay or whatever it's called. Yeah, you know? then why does he need to be intellectually stimulating, you know? So one big difference in John's account of their relationship, however, was that he said that the sexual relationship was still ongoing and it had never stopped. And in fact, that the two had shared a passionate night of sweet, sweet lovemaking at a Holiday Inn just eight days before Marty Fear was murdered. I mean, at least they get those free cookies in the lobby, you know? How times have changed. We used to go to the party and the after party, and now we're just really excited for the cookies on Saturday. That's where our life is at right now. So yeah. <laughs> He says they had been pretty, pretty busy even recently. So the police asked John if he would consent to getting his hands tested for gunshot residue, and he complied, but he warned them that it was absolutely going to come up positive because very conveniently, he had gone to a shooting range the afternoon after the murder. Oh, we've heard this before. Mm-hmm. The detectives asked him where he was the night of the shooting, and John said that he had been at home with his soon-to-be ex-wife, her mother, and their two-year-old child. He told the police that he and Lourdes were still on good terms, and he often slept over on the couch or in his son's room in an effort to spend more time with the child. When the detectives reached out to Lourdes and her mother, they both corroborated John's story, saying that they had all watched the Mel Gibson movie, The Patriot, And then they had gone to bed. Lourdes said that she went to bed sometime after 9 p.m. And when she woke up at 8 a.m., John was in their son's room sleeping. Now, a guy's ex certainly doesn't have very many reasons to cover his ass. So the alibi was a little compelling, but it was not airtight. Lourdes conceded that she was a pretty heavy sleeper. So it was completely possible that she had missed him sneaking out and coming back. 
Of course. So the detectives have got a half million dollar motive, two sketchy ass cheaters, and a gut instinct that told them to press on Michelle and John. But the crime scene and autopsy had provided pretty much no solid evidence. There were no eyewitnesses, no confessions, and the police search dog trail had led to nowhere. The best they could do was to keep pressure on Michelle. In a follow-up interview, Michelle admitted to the ongoing affair and said it was just a sex thing. When asked about love, Michelle dismissively claimed that she was not in love with John at all, but he was probably in love with her. I, you know, it's kind of hard to believe you when you already lied. Absolutely, Andrea. Sergeant Clinkscales asked her when she last spoke to John, and she said that they had talked on the day of the murder at 4 p.m. because John was helping her make repairs on her car. Is he looking under the hood? Uh, I think he was. So Clinkscales is like, are you sure that's absolutely the last time you talked to him? And she says, oh, yes, absolutely, 100%, sir. That is it. And he goes, that's good because we are going to confirm that with your phone records we just pulled. And she goes, oh, man, you know what? I just remembered. Just came to me. I did call John from the Fox and Hound restaurant at some point when I went to the ladies' room. So the investigators think, of course, that this phone call was the signal for John to get into position. It was also fishy that she refused to do a polygraph or wear a wire and talk with John. If my husband was killed, I wouldn't care if it was some guy I had stuffed. Wire me up like I'm Alexa listening to all of our conversations, baby. Also, her, the reason why she uh, went to a polygraph was because she said that she was a scientist and she had read all the studies on polygraph technology and it was such a fallible technique and resource and that she would not subject herself to it. Wow. Meanwhile, a tip came in from a man named Charles McClendon who had seen Michelle on the news and wanted to report that he had been Michelle's illicit lover for a couple months before hacking into her email and finding out that he was certainly not Michelle's only extracurricular lover. So apparently she had met this guy using the same screen name, Married Brunette, months before she met John and they had had a relationship and she told him that he was the only guy she was seeing other than her husband who was deployed. And he fell for her and he started getting really interested in her, but she was acting very shady. So he managed to figure out what her password was and got into her email and found out that she was talking to a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of guys. Stop. Even better, her password was cheater. Oh my God. Totally gets her off, huh? The playing the whole around. The whole yeah. cheating thing. You know, and there's like, I mean, she's so egregious. Like I can't even make an excuse for this. Like sometimes I do understand when you've been with somebody since you were a teenager and you likely lost your virginity to them. Maybe like you get a little older and you're like, man, it might be nice to have tried something else out in my life. But this... This is just, uh, we're in just get a divorce territory here. Like, there's no walking back what you're doing, and you seem flagrant about it, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. So the police had caught Michelle in yet another lie. And while this may have opened up the suspect pool, of course, the investigators got screamed John was the one. Sergeant Clinkscales discovered that the day after Marty was killed, John had served Lourdes with divorce papers. He decided to start working on the potentially jilted ex. While questioning Lourdes again, he showed her proof that John had been carrying on a long-term affair with Michelle. 
Lourdes burst into tears, admitting that she had suspected it already, even catching the two adulterers out at a club once. <gasps> oh, no. That's not fun. Mm-mm. Especially when you have a two-year-old. However, she did not change her story. She said, nope, he was there all night as far as I know. He was there when I went to bed. He was there when I woke yep. up. I didn't hear him leave. Despite the danger of keeping in touch and Michelle's attorney specifically commanding them not to, Michelle and John Diamond could not seem to stay away from one another. A neighbor reported John's car outside Michelle's house all of the time. And apparently he was really annoyed because John was trying not to be seen going into Michelle's house. So he would apparently park his car on like the other side of the neighbor's house and then cross the neighbor's yard in a super sketchy pattern to get to Michelle's house to the point where other people saw it and were like, hey, why is this creepy guy like hanging around and being sketchy in your yard? Is your wife having an affair? Oh my God. And he was so offended by this that he called the police and told them like, there's some guy that keeps going like over to the fears in a weird way. I think it's, you know, it might be a person of interest. And the cops were like, yes, it is. Thank you very much, my man. And by the way, do you happen to have any security cameras on your home? The neighbor did. And so for $150 and a 12-pack of beer, this neighbor turned his security cameras to just face Michelle's house to see her comings and goings. Oh, my God. That's amazing. (laughs) I love the case of beer. That's like... I know. I read that in Michael Fleeman's book, and it was just such a beautiful detail. Yeah. The guy was like, okay, $150, but you got to throw in a 12 rack. I wish I knew what type of beer. They didn't say. So some of that video evidence is going to come in quite handy later as well. The police were also eventually able to crack into some of Michelle and John Diamond's emails and discover just how hot and heavy their affair was. When the two lovebirds met in the spring of 2000, Marty had been on deployment and John had already been cheating on Lourdes with other women. Both of these dirtbags were serial cheaters. But this relationship, John and Michelle, it was electric. John found his intellectual and sexual ideal, and Michelle found a well-built, military-trained sniper who was willing to satisfy her every desire in and out of the bedroom. Based on emails exchanged, John showered Michelle with lavish comments right away. He, she was the sexiest woman he had ever seen. He would tell her that words couldn't describe how she made him feel. In less than two months of knocking boots, he was already telling her that he was in love with her, he loved her forever, and that they were soulmates. Mm-hmm. Twin flames. They were twin flames. Friends of John's claim that he didn't hide the fact that he had a married girlfriend and claimed that the sex was out of this world. He was whatever the dude version of dickmatized is. Pussmatized? Not only was Michelle herself a hot little ticket, she pulled him into the seedy world of swinging. Michelle had already been a frequent guest of the Carolina Friends, a North Carolina community of swingers and swinger events. Y'all, I looked it up. Swingers have some lit parties. You can go on cruises or to tropical nudist resorts, or you could just stay in the United States and go to a party where they provide food, drinks, and a DJ. 
No, thanks. Andy was a DJ, guys. She was a really good DJ, too. So this was happening over the summer while Michelle was living alone for those three months. And what really struck me was that she had tried to make all of this like Marty's fault. Like he wouldn't go to couples counseling. So she moved out clearly because she just wanted to be doing all this dirt, you know? Yeah. But at the same time, he's trying to fix the relationship and he did agree to go to couples counseling. And Michael Fleeman even interviewed their couples counselor. Okay. And she is doing all this behind his back. And then she's going to these sessions and she is saying that it's all Marty's fault. Like he doesn't want to grow. He doesn't want to change. He's forcing her to have kids. He's too obsessive about his cleaning. All of this is somehow Marty's issue. And meanwhile, she's having a full-on boyfriend and wild sex with strangers. I mean, I think it would be pretty darn hard for a therapist to counsel them back to marital health with a big piece of the puzzle missing on why they're not working. Yeah, for sure. But this sounds like the perfect lying victim act. Mm -hmm. She's making herself the victim, which is why I said he wasn't having an affair. She was having classic projection by saying that he was having an affair because she wanted some reason that she was allowed to behave the way she was behaving. And there was absolutely no evidence that he ever strayed. His friend said that at the very worst, he might have had a porn habit. But I would think that's pretty common when you're away from your partner for months out of the year. Yeah, and it's like the 2000s. Like, it's free on the internet now, of course. Come on, give him a break. In September of 2000, Michelle's lease was up and she reluctantly moved back in with her husband. And while the temporary separation seemed to be over, Michelle was planning for a more permanent separation, one that her husband knew nothing about. While Michelle had been living alone in June of 2000, she had applied to become a professor of psychology at the Saba University School of Medicine. Saba is a teeny tiny island only five square miles off the coast of Florida in the Caribbean. They responded to Michelle's application with interest in September, and she officially submitted paperwork at that time. The dean recalled looking over Michelle's resume, and he thought that she was going to be an excellent candidate. She had marked herself as single, and this was actually a boon. Because there was so little to do on the island for work and in general, Often spouses of faculty became bored and then it caused friction in their marriage and maybe faculty would have to leave. So it was actually like a better thing that she didn't have any dependents. There was no, they didn't have to worry about any, anybody else and their happiness, you know? However, by the time the school officially invited Michelle out for an interview in October, all of a sudden she had a fiance, a fiance named Mr. Diamond. Indeed. When my cat's healthy, he's happy, and that makes me happy. But since I'm not a mind reader, I don't always know when he's healthy. Helping me know that my cat's healthy is just one of the reasons I use Pretty Litter. Pretty Litter's ultra-absorbent crystals trap odor instantly. No more cat bathroom smell. It really is such a huge difference to have a litter box that doesn't stink up the whole house. We have babies and kids. We don't need cats making things messier as well. Pretty Litter's super light crystal base also minimizes mess and dust. Plus, the crystals last up to a month, which means less scooping and fewer trips to the garbage can. Here's the coolest thing about Pretty Litter. It changes colors to help detect early signs of potential illness in my cat, including urinary tract infections and kidney issues. 
Quincy is a member of our family, so having the health detector gives me such a different level of peace of mind. Absolutely. And on top of all of this, Pretty Litter ships free to your door in a small lightweight bag. No worries about running out and no huge containers of litter taking up space and stinking up your place. Pretty Litter helps keep my cat healthy and keeps odors down. You and your cat are going to love Pretty Litter as much as we do. Go to prettylitter.com and use code LOVEMURDER for 20% off your first order. That's prettylitter.com, code LOVEMURDER for 20% off. prettylitter.com, code LOVEMURDER. Want to hear something that's truly gruesome? Nine out of 10 Americans suffer from some type of gut issue. Gas, bloating, diarrhea, acid reflux. They're so common that most people think it's just a normal part of life. But with 80% of your immune system living in your gut, any gut problem can make it harder for your body to keep you healthy. And these days, the last thing any of us want is to get sick. Probiotics are supposed to be an easy way to support your gut and immune system. But according to research, 99.9% of the probiotics on the market die in your naturally harsh stomach acid before they even get to where they're needed. This is what makes Just Thrive Probiotic so revolutionary. Their proprietary formula is designed by nature to protect itself when conditions get rough. In fact, studies have proven that Just Thrive Probiotic arrives 100% alive in your gut making them uniquely effective at controlling gas, constipation, and bloating, and providing much-needed immune support. It's vegan-friendly, gluten-free, dairy-free, histamine-free, and non-GMO, and safe for just about anyone at any age, including kids and moms-to-be. Plus, it's been loudly endorsed by some of the biggest health luminaries on the planet. So if you're looking to give your body the crucial immune and digestive support it needs so you can feel your absolute best, there's nothing like the award-winning Just Thrive Probiotic, Get 15% off when you go to justthrivehealth.com. Use code LOVEMURDER at checkout. We all want that happily ever after feeling of finding your soulmate. What if someone not only claimed they could help you find that perfect partner, but they guaranteed it as well? From Wondery, Twin Flames is a podcast about what happens when the quest for love turns into a dangerous obsession. Jeff and Shalia are a young couple famous on YouTube, and they teach about twin flames, a deep romantic connection with your perfect ultimate partner in their videos. Twin flames means divine love, that you're designed for no one else, and they're designed for no one else. But the path to finding your twin flame isn't so simple. Some followers allege they were encouraged to cut ties with friends and family that were holding them back. They were also pushed to claim their twin flame through any means necessary, even stalking. By the time some members were able to leave the group, they didn't even recognize themselves, and they claimed that the harassment to rejoin made them fear for their safety. I mean, I'm on the edge of my seat, and Jesse, I think this is so something the Love Murder audience will be into. Absolutely. I agree, Andy. If you love our discussions of passion, romance, and love gone wrong, then you are going to absolutely adore this great show. Listen to Twin Flames on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or you can listen ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. After a long day, I just want to curl up on the couch and get lost in a gripping story with characters I can love or hate. Is that too much to ask? No. Thanks to Sundance Now, I always have something to watch that's binge-worthy and I can become obsessed with. Sundance Now is an ad-free streaming service created by AMC Networks for people who obsess over riveting storytelling and fresh perspectives. 
Sundance now has original prestige dramas, international thrillers, and bone-chilling true crime shows. Every show is a sleek production with sexy lead characters. They've got shows like the hit British series A Discovery of Witches. It's the perfect mix of period drama, romance, and edge-of-your-seat thriller. Seasons 1 and 2 are streaming now, and season 3, the final season, started January 8th. Discovery of Witches is one of my favorite fictional series of the last few years. When I heard they were making a TV version, I was thrilled. And oh man, does the show deliver. It is one of the most exciting, genre-bending, time-hopping shows on TV, and I cannot wait for this final season. You can stream Sundance Now on all of your favorite devices for as low as $4.99 a month. Just download the app or watch online and discover exclusive shows from around the world instantly. I found my next TV obsession on Sundance Now, and you will too. Try Sundance Now free for 30 days by going to SundanceNow.com and use promo code LOVEMURDER. That's SundanceNow.com, code LOVEMURDER for 30 days of free streaming. SundanceNow.com, code LOVEMURDER. So John even wrote to a scuba shop on the island to rent equipment for their visit and inquire about an instructor job. He also applied to be a martial arts instructor at an adult educational program as well. On October 18th, 2000, John and Michelle arrived on the island for Michelle's interview and were welcomed at a dinner with the deans of the medical school and their partners. The host, Administrator Cornell, noted later that John and Michelle seemed like a mismatched pair. He said that John was tall, handsome, charming, and the life of the party, well, Michelle was, quote, a little dumpy. Oh, sir. Meow. Sir. A little catty there. Both seemed pretty jovial until Cornell mentioned that he'd worked as a prosecutor in California for 14 years, and then he said the conversation dropped off. If it wasn't bad enough that these two were planning a Caribbean future for themselves, they didn't even go straight home. Instead, they stopped over on St. Martin for a three-night stay at Club Orient, a clothing-optional resort. You guys are missing my eyebrow waggle. I'm waggling. St. Martin. Very much so, yes. But do you know what was flagrant? The reservation was under Mr. and Mrs. Fear. Oh, not cool. Also, get excited, guys. We don't have a Wikipedia fun fact this week, but we do have a top trip advisor fun fact review for a nudie resort later because we are going to talk about the best and worst reviews for Club Orient. So the police now know about the Saba plans. The couple told the school that they would be available to move in January of 2001. (laughs) Seems like They certainly planned for Michelle's real husband to be out of the way by then, don't you think? They are not wasting any time. Mm -hmm. Looking for more evidence, they poured over John's phone records and found several calls to another soldier named Peyton Ross Donald, who, lo and behold, had a 9mm Smith & Wesson pistol registered to his name. The same type of gun that had shot the bullets that killed Marty Fear. When interviewed, Peyton initially tried to kind of lie for his buddy by saying that the gun had never left his possession. But when the cops said, oh, good, well, then let's just go to your house and go get it. All of a sudden, Peyton had a different story. He then fessed up and said that John had borrowed the gun from him twice. The last time that he had borrowed the gun was only two weeks earlier and John hadn't returned it yet. 
Peyton did say that he had full confidence that John would never shoot anyone and that he definitely still had the gun and he would be happy to turn it over to them. So Sergeant Clinksdale said, well, then why don't we call him? Well, Peyton was legitimately stunned when John told him that he didn't have his firearm anymore. (sighs) So he's on the phone pretending like he's not with the police and he's like, what do you mean you don't have the gun anymore? He 100% thought that his friend was not a murderer. So he's like, "Uh, okay. And Sergeant Klingscales is just standing there over him. So he got off the phone and then Klingscales made him follow up twice more, calling him back and being like, well, what happened to the gun? Where is the gun? Like, why can't you tell me where it is? And he's like, I don't know, man. I just don't have it. So while Peyton was kind of recovering from this and being like, holy shit, what did my friend do? He also told the officers that he would give them the ammunition that he used in the gun and that I think he had given some to John too to use with the gun. Okay. So he's like, I have some that I use. So I'll give you guys that for testing. And then John called back while the officers were leaving. And he said, you know what? I was wrong. I actually have it. I'm so sorry. I'll bring it over to you later. So Peyton's like, all right, this is very confusing. So he tells the cops like, hey, he's supposed to be here in like an hour or two and he's going to drop off the gun. So I'll call you as soon as it happens, you know? One hour after John and Peyton's conversation, the military police at Fort Bragg responded to a call from John Diamond that, oh my God, can you believe it? His car had been broken into in a smash and grab. Okay. Uh, Very convenient, again. Even before the Fayetteville police talked to the military police, the MP knew that something was fishy. In a real smash and grab, glass is usually found all over the car's interior. Obviously, as you break into a car, the glass is going to smash all over the seats. In this case, there was no glass on the interior of the car. It was just on the sidewalk. And it was done in a weird pattern that (laughs) indicated he had opened the door all the way and then smashed the window. That's not as good as what I was thinking. I was thinking he just got inside the car the other way. Naturally, John said the only thing that was missing from this break-in was Peyton's gun. So having a privately owned gun on a military base is actually illegal in military law. So John was pulled in for questioning by the MP even before the Fayetteville police was able to communicate with them that this was potentially a missing murder weapon. Okay. The military police did their own investigation and surmised that John had faked the break-in, not just the glass, but also it had been raining like all day that day and the interior of the car was dry. Oh my God. But most damning was the fact that John claimed that he had no idea when the break-in had occurred because the car had actually been parked on the base all weekend while he was in Florida with Michelle. Now, the two of them had gone to Florida, I think, earlier in the weekend. And he was also saying that Michelle was a platonic acquaintance of his and that he had just like hopped a ride with her because he was thinking of going to school in Florida to finish his bachelor's degree. Okay. So he said that also because adultery is illegal in the military. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Think about how many of our cases people would be in a lot of trouble in the military. They'd be doing illegal things. So so he was like trying to play it off. And so he's like, anyway, my car was on base 
all weekend long. So I have no idea when this smash and grab could have occurred. And they go, okay, okay, okay. So the Fayetteville police go to Michelle's neighbor and pull the video surveillance. And they find a video of John and his car with the window completely intact, pull up only an hour before he reported the break-in. He's just, you know, at least he's quote unquote good looking, you know. (laughs) Supposedly so, yes. The police believe that after the calls with Peyton, John was spooked. So he drove to Michelle's house to discuss what they were going to do now. And the two of them had concocted the whole cockamamie scheme together. Michelle even later tried to meet up with Peyton to see what he had said to the police. And unbeknownst to Michelle, Peyton told the police about this planned meeting, and he agreed to wear a wire. Unfortunately, Michelle chickened out, but the very fact that she had tried to tamper with a witness paired with the fake break-in and Peyton's missing murder weapon signaled to the army that it was time to arrest John Diamond. By now, the forensics had been able to confirm that the bullets found in Marty's body had been shot from a Smith & Wesson model 639 or 5906. Well, Peyton's model was a 5906. If you are a gun person, you're probably like, it's called a 639 or a 5906 or something. (laughs) Clearly, I am not. It is a model 639. So they could pinpoint it down to these two very specific models of one brand's type of gun. That's amazing. And one of those was Peyton's gun. So the military transferred John to prison at Camp Lejeune while they prepared for an Article 32 hearing to determine whether John would be formally charged and court-martialed. An Article 32 hearing is the military equivalent of a pretrial hearing or a grand jury-type proceeding. And I don't know if we've actually covered a court-martial before, but the military tries active-duty military personnel in their own court for serious offenses, murder absolutely being one of them. On March 14th, 2001, the Army issued a statement that John was being charged with five criminal counts. He was being charged with adultery, like I said, illegal in the military, the gun charge for having a privately owned weapon in a privately owned car on base, disposing of a firearm illegally, conspiring to commit murder, and for the murder itself. John's civilian attorney, Coy Brewer, told the media that John was innocent and that he was confident that the matter would be resolved. Brewer stressed that John's ex-wife, Lourdes, was providing an airtight alibi. Mm, Not quite airtight. If the defense was hanging their hat on Lourdes' alibi, they were in trouble. In a move that shocked John and his attorney, Lourdes Diamond got up on the stand at the Article 32 hearing in April of 2001 And she told the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Lourdes admitted that John had been chronically unfaithful. In fact, she was shocked after they had been dating for a little while in Panama, and she discovered that John had cheated on and left a former wife right before he came to Panama, and he had actually already had a child that he had essentially abandoned. Oh, no. And she didn't know this until they were months and months in. She testified that she had caught John red-handed several times, but didn't know what to do about it, especially once they were married with a baby and she was living in a foreign country where she was completely dependent upon him. Yeah. And she also really loved him. She said still to this day, like she didn't want to get divorced. I mean, now she was like wanting to get divorced, but like 
up until recent announcements. She had still been in love with him, still hoping that he was going to change his mind and come back to the family. Well, the real jaw dropper was when Lourdes admitted that she had lied to the police about John's alibi. Well, the night did begin with watching The Patriot. Sometime after 8 p.m., John got a call on his cell phone, got dressed, and left the house. Though Lourdes was actually a heavy sleeper and did not hear John return, her mother was not and reported that she heard John come in very late. She said that she had already been asleep for a few hours, so she knew it was late, and that she remembered it because it struck her as odd that John immediately went to the laundry area and washed some clothes in the washing machine. Uh-oh. Mm-hmm. And she thought, that's a weird thing to do when you get home in the middle of the night. Unless you're having an affair, then it's not super weird. Yeah, that that would be a good excuse for him. Yeah. Or a murder. It's not as good of an excuse, though. <laughs> no. When asked kind of why she she lied for him and now, now she was changing her story, Lourdes said on the stand, every time he called me from jail, he said, remember, we're going to be together because I love my son a lot and I love you a lot and you're the only one I've ever loved. I changed my statement because I realized that he never loved his son, nor did he ever love me. I love my son more than I love him. Good girl. Good girl. I guess that she was afraid that if she was discovered having committed perjury, that they would deport her and separate her from her son, who was, of course, an American citizen. So scary. Of course she had to tell the truth. Peyton testified about the gun, as did the military police regarding the fraudulent smash and grab. And a friend of John's testified that a day or two, or maybe even the day of the murder, John had been told by Michelle that Marty had raped her and that she needed to do something to stop him from abusing her again. In a prosecutorial slam dunk, John was court-martialed on all charges. If convicted, especially of the murder charge, John would likely spend the rest of his life in prison. So things were looking pretty bleak for John Diamond, but Michelle wasn't wasting much time crying for her lover. In fact, she was already planning a nice little life for herself. In between calling to get her grubby little hands on Marty's life insurance money, she changed her name back to her maiden name of Forcier and started shacking up with a man she had met at a Florida bar. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. He did dump her, though, when one of his friends put together that she was potentially a murderer. She also kept in close contact with John's sister, Deborah, to keep tabs on her erstwhile lover as she had to make sure he didn't crack under pressure and throw her under the bus. Like, they said that she was calling, like, trying to reach John as much as she could. She was using false names. She was calling his sister to the point where his sister was like, I I don't know, Michelle, I don't think I want to talk to you anymore. And then like she bizarrely called back trying to speak in an accent at one point. Yeah. So she was like all over this trying to cover her ass. Well, she's out there already banging new guys. Wow. Well, John's devotion was about to be put to the ultimate test when his court martial began in August of 2001. Military trials are a lot like their civilian counterparts, only the defendant is allowed to select either the judge colonel to hear the case and rule alone, or they can select a jury comprised of six officers, that's it, just the six officers, or a jury of four officers and two enlisted personnel, which is what John was. Okay. 
he picked the last one, which makes sense because that represents more of his peer group. Okay. John pleaded guilty to adultery as well as the gun charge, but pleaded not guilty to the three more serious charges, obstruction of justice, conspiracy to commit murder, and murder. The prosecutor argued that there was proof of the passionate love affair that drove John to go to great lengths to please his lover, as well as evidence that John had killed his romantic rival. The two killers planned to run away to a Caribbean island together with a half-million-dollar fat check in their pocket, and who better to take out the husband other than a trained army ranger sniper? Unbelievable. In fact, the military could prove that Marty had been shot and killed with military precision. Then, after he did the dirty deed, he covered it up with a convenient firing range visit to mask the gunshot residue on his hands, the false break-in, and attempting to manipulate his estranged wife to commit perjury for him. And she would testify to that. Meanwhile, the defense relied heavily on the reasonable doubt argument, stating that there were no eyewitnesses, no physical evidence, no accomplice testimony, and no confession. As far as his accomplice went, Michelle did take the stand, but she pled the fifth, which I think we've covered this before, guys, but pleading the fifth says that you can decline to answer questions in a criminal proceeding to avoid incriminating yourself. So it was one of those very unsatisfying... Yeah. witnesses where literally everything they ask her, she's like, I plead the fifth. I plead the fifth. I plead the fifth. It's like, oh. <laughs> yeah, so that was that. Both Lourdes and her mother testified using Spanish interpreters. The rest of the witnesses I discussed in the Article 32 hearing came back for this one as well. John's family was surprised when his attorney only called one witness for the defense, the canine officer whose dog had picked up a scent for a short period, trying to say that there was somebody else that they hadn't really investigated. Okay. In closing, the prosecutor laid out the whole nefarious plot from beginning to end, illuminating all the ways that proved a military person planned and executed the attack. Basically, he was saying that the stairwell was a perfect kill zone in which to ambush. He knew to take the shell casings because the only ones left on the scene were under Marty's body. And the pattern of the shots and the advance, the way he advanced upon Marty all were indicative of military training. Okay. I mean, that makes sense. Which, yeah. And it also makes sense why the military has their own judicial system because they Think know about how this. they know this. They yep. know immediately their jury is understanding it and picking up the pieces rather than, you know, a military to attorney educate. trying to explain this to yeah. civilians. Yeah. Yeah. Most importantly, he had no alibi and looked pretty damn guilty for trying to coerce the mother of his child into perjury. They finished with the fact that, hey, you know what? You might be thinking, yeah, well, Michelle is the mastermind and the real killer. And... Prosecutor Bagwell said, you're absolutely correct. He closed with, this whole case is about a conspiracy. These two are linked. The acts of one are the acts of the other. They're constantly communicating. They're in it together. They're up to their necks. In this case, they're over their heads. They conspired to commit murder for profit, and they did. In the defense's close, they tried to argue that it had been Michelle and not John who had committed the murder. There was gunpowder residue found on Michelle's hands. But the coroner had said the trace of it that was there was completely possible that she had gotten it from cradling Marty's head that was covered with gunpowder residue. Okay, wow. 
Yes. So, well, this is an interesting point. It actually doesn't conclusively prove that she was the one who shot the gun. Yep. They said the only thing that John was guilty of was having an affair and getting manipulated by a clever psychologist into helping cover up her crime. After deliberating for three hours and 15 minutes, what do you think the jury said? Guilty. You are correct, Andy. Guilty on all charges. John was dishonorably discharged, stripped of his staff sergeant status, and ordered to spend the rest of his natural life behind bars without the possibility of parole. Without the possibility of parole. L-wopped military style. Babes. We're gonna get there. We're gonna get there. Hold your horses. Meanwhile, the civilian authorities were working hard to build a case against Michelle. It was only during John's trial, actually, that they had finally unearthed all of these emails. So the emails that I told you about that that showed their relationship in the beginning of their relationship and all the stuff about that, they were not actually used in John's trial. It all came out after, before Michelle's trial. Wow. Yeah. So I told you guys that a little ahead of the actual discovery of the emails, just because I wanted you to get a better picture of their relationship. Okay. So yeah. Basically, now they're getting a very good picture of their sex life, how they got together, what compelled them to stay together. But there was also something very interesting in these emails. It showed that they had not had a perfectly smooth relationship. In fact, they had kind of broken up for a little while, too. There was like this up and down in their relationship that had occurred. There was also lots and lots and lots of emails from men and women that Michelle had swapped with, flirted with online, and made plans to engage in three ways, four ways, and more ways. Oh my goodness, Michelle. Mm-hmm. Just get a divorce, kids. Uh, just get a divorce, and then nobody cares what dirt you're doing. I certainly what? don't. You get yours if you're single and not a murderer. So this is all very titillating. But the thing that really stood out was how Michelle had manipulated and controlled John using her knowledge of psychology. Michelle had love and sex bombed John to get him under her spell. Like all of like the compliments, the I love you twos, the we're definitely soulmates and all of the sex, the crazy sex whenever he wants it, whatever way he wants it, even like, you know, bringing him into swinging, whatever desires he had or could think of. She was there to fulfill. You know, she led him to believe that they were building a future together. I mean, the whole trip to Saba, there was also evidence that they said that if Saba wasn't going to work out, that they would move to Florida together where she was going to practice and he would finish his bachelor's degree. But when the couple returned from Saba, she began to distance herself from John, becoming slower to respond to him, not showing up for planned dates, and eventually telling him she totally loved him, but it just really didn't seem like it was going to work out. So I read a Crime Piper blog uh, article by C. Cortez about Michelle Fear that said that Michelle was using a technique called intermittent reinforcement, which is a type of conditioning where a reward or punishment is not administered every time the associated act is performed. It's kind of given out randomly. And a famous example of this, and I don't know if we've talked about this before because I think it's a very fascinating study, was a scientific experiment. And 
talk about how we should test on animals. This is a really weird experiment. Essentially, scientists gave a bunch of rats in two studies a little lever that they could push to get cocaine. I know about this. Yes, of course, the little rats were like, push, 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 push to get the cocaine because it's highly addictive. And then on one, in one cage, they basically just turned it off and they never turned it back on. And eventually the rat figured out that it wasn't going to get any more cocaine and it stopped and got over it, you know? But in the other cage, every like third, fifth, seventh push, they got a little cocaine. So those rats pushed that button until they died. So the moral of the story is that this intermittent conditioning is very addictive because you're very destabilized and there's always the possibility that it could happen. It's kind of like if you're dating somebody and if they just break up with you, you get over it. But if they like don't really break up with you, they just kind of like sometimes answer your text and sometimes don't and sometimes like, you know, text you at three in the morning for a hookup, you know, like they keep you on the line, you know? So basically by doing this and, you know, Michelle having a doctorate in psychology, being an actual doctor of psychology would have known this. So she's essentially taking away that future, that love, but she would still concede that she was in love with him. She would still eventually answer his emails and be like, I wish it was different too. It's just not, you know, it got so bad that John ended up threatening to kill himself about the fact that she was withdrawing her love from him. His emails were desperate and depressed. And one week before the shooting, he wrote to her, I'm sorry you have forsaken us. I really do love you, but I guess your love just wasn't there. You lied quite well. You fooled me. I signed my life insurance over to you two weeks ago. I'll make it look like an accident. There's no problem with the money. I wanted to spend my life with you, but since I'm so easily thrown away by you, I guess I'm not worth that much. So, oh, well, it was a hell of a ride. A friend is squaring me away with something. I'll take a few hours to think about life and maybe write something. I will always love you and hopefully see you in another life. I love you, John. Oh, my God. And she was just fine with this? Well, so this was the same period one week before the murder that Peyton gave John the gun for the first time. Because remember, he said he he lent it to him twice. So there's some confusion whether the gun was borrowed to kill Marty or to kill John. Was he going to use it on himself? But I mean, she's got him suicidal. I mean, right now, if he's willing to end his own life, chances are good that he'll kill someone he doesn't like very much and believes is abusing the love of his life. Yeah. Also like really fucked up that he's not leaving, doing a life insurance for his kid. His child, Wheelie is two, the first one that he abandoned and now his other one. Yeah. Yeah. That is, his affair partner gets his life insurance money. (sighs) Poor Lourdes. I know. Yeah. Well, by the time he sat in a prison cell in Leavenworth, Kansas, knowing that he was going to look at those walls for the rest of his natural life. It seems like he pretty much figured out that he had been duped. Okay, good. Yeah. You know what the the biggest love murder red flag is? When somebody asks you to kill their spouse. Guys, if that ever happens, you march your ass out of there. You get your butt back on Tinder. Or you like call us. Yeah. Or go to the police. Probably just go to the police. <laughs> yeah. 
In a move that I will call vastly too little, much too late, John filed a complaint against Michelle with the North Carolina Psychological Board, alleging unethical behavior for sleeping with him while she was his therapist. Well. Well. (laughs) That was the least of Michelle's concerns because on May 21st, 2002, 18 months after Marty's murder, she was finally indicted by a grand jury and charged with first-degree murder. Huzzah! Yay! She's going to face justice! Right? Uh Uh-oh. Wrong. They went to arrest her, and that bitch had disappeared. Stop. She's gone. She goes to John. She goes to North Carolina. She's out there somewhere. So here we go again. We got a bitch on the run. So in Mich- this week's segment of Bitch on the Run. <laughs> it really is a segment. Think about it. All the other than John List, who was really good at it, I feel yeah, like almost for every his, other like anal cream. His hemorrhoid cream, yes. Um, no, John List was the most successful because it was like 18 years. But like other than him, I, I think we've only had covered women who who, you know, successfully ran from yeah, that's jail or the smart. <laughs> So, Michelle's last known whereabouts had been her grandmother's house in New Orleans. In early May, Michelle had told Sweet Mama, which was actually what Michelle called her grandmother, that she was moving to Los Angeles after a stop in Colorado oh, no. to see her family. Coming to get you. We don't want you! <laughs> but instead, don't worry, Andy, you're safe. She headed straight for her old stomping grounds, Florida. I mean, that makes more sense. Indeed. On the drive, she stayed in several hotels using a fake name and cash, and she stopped by a little mall to give herself an escaped convict makeover. (laughs) Michelle cut her long brown hair into a very short platinum blonde look. Of course she did. They always do. Yeah. It's not quite a pixie, but not quite a bob. It's more like like a a mullet. Yeah, it's like like an early 2000s Hillary Clinton or a modified Karen, I would say. Modified Karen Karen? You know, like modified like a Karen, you know, the Karen haircut? Yeah. Yeah. But like, but okay. Yeah. Yeah. Like uh, John and Kate plus eight. You know that one. Yeah. So Michelle charmingly wrote to her sister because she was writing letters to her sister also. And she had like, she kept a journal. They found all this later. So we know everything that she was doing at this time. Well, she charmingly wrote to her sister that she cut her hair and that she now looked like a quote, this is her words, lesbian. Nice. Oh, real, real nice, Michelle. You're really taking the cake. On June 1st, 2002, Michelle signed a six-month lease at an apartment building in Lauderdale-by-the-Sea as Liza Pendragon. What? That was her assumed (laughs) name. If someone told me that was their name, I would just be like, yeah, no. No. (laughs) Just by by your name, I can tell. Either on the the lam. (laughs) An 18th century romance novelist, uh, and that is your nom de plume, or you are a psychologist from North Carolina who psychologically manipulated your lover who you went to crazy swinger parties with to kill your husband. I would get that all from Eliza Pendragon. Wow. Yeah, and she it was Eliza, but she went by Liza, guys. 
yes. So the landlady said that she found her to be pleasant and considerate and noted that Liza asked her not to share any of her information or let anyone know that she was living there to anyone who called or inquired because she was on the run from an abusive policeman husband in California who threatened to kill her if he tracked her down. Good lie. Good lie. It's a good lie because she said, even if it's the police, even if it's the FBI, don't trust them because he has connections everywhere and he's trying to kill me. Yeah. So Michelle told a lot of tall tales during this period in Lauderdale by the sea. She told others that she was a first grade teacher escaping an abusive FBI agent husband. Babe, you got to keep your story straight. That's like the number one rule of lying. Yeah. And this and this lie makes just no sense. She told somebody else, a neighbor, I don't even know how this com- like comes up in a neighborly conversation, that she was friends with an Egyptian prince who gave her fancy jewelry. No. Like, was somebody like, oh, those are really nice earrings. And she's like, ah, I got them from an Egyptian prince. So she also, they found this on her later, wrote up extensive plans for how she was going to create a second, third, and fourth stage identity and set up all of the necessary documentation for all of those identities. She she would go buy a bunch of fantasy books and pull the names from them. No, it really sounds like that. Listen to these names. Alexandra Solomon, Maya Branwen, and Ashford Tierney. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's some like Game of Thrones shit. She didn't decide to go like Jane Johnson over here. That would have been better, Uh, I feel like. It would have been. But no, she's living a whole new life. And you know what? With these fancy new names, you got to get a fancy new face. So the murderer's extreme makeover continues because she went over to a Florida plastic surgeon and she said, I wanted to get some work done. And she didn't want to just look different, you know, to keep evading arrest. She wanted to look better. She ended up paying upfront $15 thousand dollars for various plastic surgeries that I'll get into later. In between the time that she went to this plastic surgeon and put up the money, but before it actually was performed, she did meet a new boyfriend. She met a 25-year-old guy named Dana Horton, who was apparently at a beachside bar celebrating his 25th birthday when Michelle walked by and his friends kind of were like, hey, come join our party. So she did. And that night he got a special present when Eliza showed him her birthday suit. Wink, wink. So guys, that was a really long way of saying they had sex the first night they met. (laughs) something a little bit more climactic, but no, no, that was poorly performed. It was better in my head. Okay. So basically she already had this new boyfriend. So the new boyfriend, Dana goes home for 4th of July. They've only been dating for like a couple weeks at this point, but obviously we know she moves fast. And he also confirmed what John Diamond said, which was that she was a dynamo in the sack. Yeah. So he was already fully into her and he went home for 4th of July. And when he came home, she was just covered with bandages like all over her face. She's bruised. It's really bad. And she tells him, not that she had extensive plastic surgery, oh, but that she got into a car accident. And that's what happened. Oh, got it. Okay. Yes. And he feels so terribly that he wasn't there because he was in Nebraska for the holiday. 
So yeah, but what had really happened, of course, was that calling herself Alexander Solomon, apparently she was already moving into identity number two, she had underwent six hours of surgery. She got an eye lift, a chin implant, a nose job, and laser treatments to address acne scars and discoloration around her eyes. Wow. It looks rough. It doesn't look good. On August 5th, 2002, Eliza Pendragon, a.k.a. Michelle, was surprised as hell when the FBI tracked her down at her boyfriend's house. So apparently she had used the same calling card a couple times to call her father from Dana's house. Okay. So they had been monitoring all of her family's phone records. And when they saw the repeat phone calls from a calling card in this area, they decided to follow up on the lead. And so they ambushed her at Dana's house. And I think she probably would have preferred an altogether different mugshot because she had had like the surgery about a month prior, but she had just gone a couple days before to have a follow-up laser treatment. Y'all. <laughs> Her mugshot is rough. It is rough. Like I I can't wait to see I think it. I think it might be the worst mugshot. And we had Kelly Cochran up there with her meth scab. So yeah, that was scary. Yeah, this is this is not a good look. Hold on, Andy. I'm gonna send it to you real quick. Please. And guys, I'll try to get the Instagram up on a on a timely schedule. I I think apparently in you know 2001 laser treatments were different than they are today because whatever that is does not look good. It looks like her whole face is like second-degree burns. It's really bad. All in all, Michelle had been on the lam for two and a half months. When they arrested her, she had fake IDs, the document that showed her intent to adopt new identities, as well as books with titles like ID by Mail and How to Disappear in America. Oh. <laughs> Michelle was extradited to North Carolina and was offered a plea deal. The deal was that Michelle would plead guilty to either conspiracy to commit first-degree murder or plead guilty to second-degree murder. She would have been sentenced to 94 to 120 months. So Michelle would have been potentially out in less than eight years. She was only 33, so she could have been out around 40. I mean... You can have a brilliantly beautiful long life after 40. You could still have kids. You can still have, I mean, she didn't want to anyways, but like you can do so much with your life. I mean, seven years is a crazy sweetheart deal for her. Oh, yeah. Well, it seems like Michelle thought that she could seduce a jury just like she had seduced so many men in her life because yeah, she but does said- she remember what her face looks like after the laser treatment? I mean, it did heal. But she said- no deal. But everyone sees that photo, you know. Oh, this was, I think, very foolhardy on her part. Thus, on September 27th, 2004, Our Lady of Several Identities and at least two faces stood trial for the murder of her honorable captain husband, Marty Thier. It was clear from the beginning that this was going to be a legal royal rumble. The prosecutor painted Michelle as a lying, cheating, greedy, manipulative Jezebel while Michelle's defense attorney, Kirk Osborne, fought every piece of evidence and every motion and even motioned, I think like several times, for a mistrial on very dubious grounds. 
So all of the old regulars from John's case testified, Lourdes, her mother, Peyton, with some special new guests just for Michelle, including her couples therapist, her ex-lover, Charles McClendon, and even a jailhouse informant named Roseda Rivera, who spilled some hot-ass cinnamon spice tea. It wow. Was spicy tea. Wow. Are you ready for this? I am. So I am, I do kind of think she was telling the truth because she got absolutely nothing in exchange for her testimony and she was in jail for larceny and forgery, but she only had a year left on her sentence and she hadn't really been in jail that long. It's not like one of these lifers trying to get out or anything, you know, or get parole. So yeah, and and I didn't read anywhere that this was like some sort of habit of hers. So Michael Fleeman wrote in his book that she testified that she had spent time with Michelle in 2003 in the Cumberland County Jail's day room where inmates could mingle, watch television, and play games. Rivera said that Michelle had confided that she had a married lover who was so smitten with her that he would do anything for her. Michelle had wanted to end the relationship, according to Rivera, and had given the lover an ultimatum. The only way her and her lover could be together was if her husband was gone. Her husband would have to be out of the picture. Rivera also claimed that Michelle had had a female lover in jail until wardens broke them up. She had had sex with a male CO and that Michelle had bragged that she and her attorney had an inappropriate sexual relationship when he visited her in jail. Wow, she is on a roll. Roseda spilling the dirt. And you can imagine how awkward this is because it's her defense attorney. He's sitting right there. Yeah. He gets up to cross-examine her and she's like, I don't know, it's just what Michelle told me. Wow. I don't know. Also, though, she's such a liar. Michelle's such a liar. So at this, because it was like an insult to him, the defense attorney motioned for a mistrial for the fourth time. And the judge was like, no, and just stop. Can you please stop? (laughs) After six weeks of testimony, the prosecution rested with no peep from John Diamond, who hadn't been on the witness list. So we're going to put a pin in why John didn't testify. Okay. The defense presented Michelle's sister, Angela, and a therapist who said that Michelle was a depressed attention seeker who derived her worth from men's attention, but not a murderer. And then in closing, the prosecutor delivered a pretty profound metaphorical address relating to the two hearts that were involved in this case. And I'm going to paraphrase this, but he did this very beautiful job where he talked about how honorable and good Marty's heart was, which is so, so true. You know, all of his good deeds, the the type of person he was, how he helped his mother. I mean, he just went through how wonderful Marty was. And then he gets to Michelle's cold heart. And the metaphor was about when the paramedics got to the scene and they immediately you know, took Michelle away from the body and tested all of her vitals, made sure she wasn't injured, you know, made sure she like wasn't in shock. Yeah. And her blood pressure was just totally normal. And generally when faced with your spouse 
violently getting murdered, you would have skyrocketed blood pressure. You would be under incredible stress. It's just not an ordinary circumstance. So the entire closing was this like very well done metaphor about her cold, cold heart. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And the (laughs) defense attorney could not hang. I got to say, he did not did not do the two hearts thing. He did not have a beautiful narrative. Instead, this man, this professional man who went to law school, stood up there and honest to goodness started crying. Whoa. Started crying tears rolling down his face, addressing the jury. And he said, I want to comment about my relationship with Michelle. It has been said by a state's witness that my relationship with her was too close, was so close. His voice began to break. Well, I've been practicing for 30 years, he said, tears now coming down. And I have represented hundreds of people charged with murder. And I have never had an inappropriate relationship with a person ever. I'm happily married. I've got two beautiful daughters and a beautiful wife. At this point, too, the the prosecution was like, oh, my God, can we object? What is going on? Why is he crying? What is it? And the judge is like, can we stop crying? Please stop crying. There's no crying in being a trial attorney. Stop it. And then he went on and it made it worse. I'll tell you now, she has been an incredible client. Incredible. Wow. She is wonderful. And she doesn't have me under her spell. And she's not manipulating me. You're doing a really good job of showing that to us, guy. (laughs) He did then shake off his tears and he got to the heart of his closing, which was, let's clear the air about what she's not on trial for, he said. She's not on trial for adultery. She's not on trial for having numerous affairs. She's not on trial for having sex with numerous men. She's not on trial for having a sexual addiction, if that's what you believe she has. That's not what she's on trial for. But, you know, most of the state's case has been throwing as much mud at Michelle as they possibly could. Because you know what? They don't have the facts to prove her guilty. Wow. Well, the jury begged to disagree. Because after only three hours of deliberation, they returned a guilty verdict. (laughs) Michelle was sentenced to life in prison Without the possibility of parole. Wow, both of them. Double LWAP. Is this our first double LWAP? I think it might be our first double LWAP. Yeah, she also got an additional 16 and a half years on top for the conspiracy. A little cherry on top of the you're fucked Sunday. Yeah, I mean, it's like, Yeah, and this was this happened six days before her 34th birthday. She was so young. She could have taken that deal. She could have not murdered her husband. And now she will spend the rest of her life in prison. In 2005, Michelle spoke to journalist Edward Pound from the magazine U.S. News and World Report from prison. And she downplayed all of her sexual shenanigans, saying that she was just a lonely officer's wife who he was always gone. And she... She actually just went on these sites to flirt and she very rarely actually met up with these people and that she had only ever actually gone to two swingers events and they're not all about sex. Sometimes it's just about couples getting together, having a drink and a little flirt. Okay. 
Yeah, so she downplayed all of that. And she now claimed that she had nothing to do with Marty's murder and that John went berserk and murdered Marty all on his own because he was obsessed with her. Wow, how the stories change. Indeed. She said that she was the victim of the police, the prosecution, the press, and most of all, John Diamond himself. I made a lot of mistakes, she told the magazine, and ultimately, I may be responsible for Marty's death because if it wasn't for me, John Diamond would have never come into our lives. Michelle made headlines once more in 2010 when she allegedly attempted a prison break. (laughs) An unnamed individual said to be a young man who was deeply infatuated with Michelle sent her blueprints of the prison and maps of the surrounding areas. According to a local Raleigh news site, WRAL.com, Michelle was given 45 days punishment for the infraction and prohibited from ever being in contact with the unnamed individual ever again. She still got it. She still got it. So the big question is, why didn't John testify against Michelle? What happened there? The prosecutor in Michelle's case did reach out to the military in order to compel John to testify. The military said at one point that the possibility of parole in 20 years was on the table in exchange for John's testimony against Michelle. Okay. In 2002, John wrote a document called a proffer that alleged that not only did Michelle use cocaine and ecstasy during their swingers romps, but that she plumbed him for painful secrets and weaknesses under the guise of giving him free therapy. Oh, my God. He later realized that she was just figuring out all of his buttons to push to manipulate him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. John went on to say that he had borrowed the gun to allow Michelle to target shoot. That's what he said. She wanted protection from an ex-lover who had threatened her. That's what she told him. She also told him that she was for sure getting a divorce from Marty. And now this was kind of corroborated by an email, which he was like, did you tell Marty yet? What was his reaction? When are you like officially filing? Like, yeah, it did seem like he was under the impression that there was going to be a divorce at some point. He claimed on the night of the murder that she had told him to meet her at her office at 11 p.m. He said that that was not unusual. In fact, the office, because she had a key to it after she had moved back in with her husband, was kind of a normal rendezvous spot, you know? Okay. So he said he showed up at 11 p.m. and he actually saw them pull in, was surprised to see that Marty was with Michelle, and then was shocked when Michelle shot Marty. What? Yes. He said that at some, like at point she had taken the gun from him because she was going to use it for target practice. And he had no idea she was planning to shoot her husband. Oh but my God. he was, yeah. He said that she had latex gloves on and she was wearing something other than her Christmas sweater. So she must've like put something else on specifically for this moment. And when he saw her shoot Marty, he ran out And said, what did you do? And she was like, take this gun and get out of here. Wow. And then she put on an acting job. That is what he contends happened that night. 
So essentially, he said that he actually just cleaned the gun and gave it back to Peyton. But when the investigation heated up, Michelle got really nervous and she's like, you got to get the gun back so we can destroy it. So he went back to Peyton, borrowed it for that second time. And then John filed off the serial number, dismantled it into pieces and dropped all the pieces in different dumpsters. Wow. So like I told you, she continued to contact him using fake names after his arrest and even told him through a fake name at one point that they should definitely both commit suicide because they were screwed and it would be better for both of them to be together in their next life. Oh my God. Oh my God. That That is an old ploy. The old Romeo should, and Juliet. We should definitely both die. It's not like you're the biggest witness against me or anything. And that's why I'm telling you to kill yourself. Oh, it's so sad because she like knew he was suicidal as well. It's so fucked Ugh, up. It's so fucked up. So gross. The proffer was provided to the military prosecutors who gave it to the state prosecutors for Michelle's case. However, no deal was ever reached for John and he continues to serve his unending sentence. And he was not going to testify without getting some sort of deal. His attorney claimed on appeal that the military duped him into thinking that there was a deal just to find out what he knew. Okay. They wanted to know what he knew. And that when he actually told them they got what they wanted and they didn't actually care about Michelle's trial or, you know, anything else. And they were like, no deal. Okay. Duped again, the John Diamond story. So John's appeals so far have failed. But in 2010, the same year that Michelle was in the news for getting some other poor schmuck to help her break out of prison, John was also getting some press for filing a federal lawsuit in which he sought $1 million in punitive damages from the military prison for censoring his sexually explicit love letters to his wife. Now, the blog post that I read by Z Cortez said that his wife is still Lourdes. What? So apparently they never finalized their divorce and she has stood by him all of these years. Wow. Wow. Anyway, John claimed that the fact that they censored his sexual language was an infringement on his First Amendment rights. Oh, my God. Stop. Needless to say, I could not find that this went anywhere. So I do not think he won $1 million for them, you know, blacking out like cock and stuff. All right. Wow. What a story. Thank you to Amanda and our other recommender because this was really a love murder story for the books, I got to say. It was pretty perfect. Okay, guys, as promised, we have our new segment. It's right up there with our, our strip club review segment. Nude Resort Trip Advisor Review. So I'm going to start with the bad and then we'll move to the good. Okay. Actually, I feel like do it the other way around. Do the other way around? Okay, cool. So there's lots and lots of good reviews on Facebook, actually, which I'm surprised that people would feel so comfortable just putting their real name and profile as they review a nudist resort. But I am glad that they are living their truth and not ashamed because there's nothing wrong with parading around in your birthday suit, my friends. So it has a 4.8 
on Facebook with wow. 55 reviews. And apparently in 2017 received a certificate of excellence from TripAdvisor. Wow. Yep. It looks like this place is amazing if you are into a nude beach. It says that it is located in Orient Bay on one of the finest beaches in the world with white sand and crystal clear blue waters. Our average temperature of 85 degrees Fahrenheit year round makes us the island nude beach paradise resort. And all of the reviews said that it was like absolutely wonderful, most amazing place on earth, a great place to relax in the sun and surf, forget the rest of the world and luxuriate in happiness and friendliness all around you. Also, I am dying. I'm not going to say this guy's name, but three years ago, he recommended it. Andy, the picture is of like anyone's grandparents. It's literally looks like a Sears portrait studio picture of your grandparents who are in their like, you know, late seventies, early eighties in the early nineties. And he wrote, we just spent nine beautiful days at Orient beach. And he was talking about how all of the employees are very excellent and everybody is looking to return. Apparently it was destroyed in a hurricane, but they have since rebuilt. I mean, I got to say everybody gives it a brilliant five stars. Love Club. Oh, great beach. Great people. Visited her during our recent cruise stop. The Cedric and the young ladies at Perch Light are doing a great job taking care of the beachers. Keep up the good work. So yes, there's another woman that said, uh, one of my favorite places on earth, been going to St. Martin for many years. Can't wait to go back. Hope they put the floating docks back. I'm a nudist, but my boyfriend is not. So I go to Club O alone, but I've never felt safer. Ah. Yeah, guys. Okay, so the negative one was on TripAdvisor. And it was titled Creepers at Club Orient Beach. My wife and I are wrapping up our week in St. Martin, and we were disappointed in the quality of people at the first 50 to 75 yards of the beach after the rocks as you approach the Club O building. We walked the beach down there that way three different days, and there were three to four men each day who looked to be in their late 50s and older, all of whom appeared to be trying to shock pedestrians with their nudity. I am all about freedom of choice and lifestyle, but provocative poses and displaying your state of arousal to passersby is creepy and a turnoff. We were talking to two young ladies who walked the beach selling jewelry and both complained about these men. They said that one was particularly vulgar by calling them closer before displaying, again in quotations, his state of arousal. Our subsequent walks down the beach stopped well before the rocks. There was 36 replies and people came for Club O. They were like, that's not our clientele. I don't know. I don't even think they were in the club. You're talking about outside of the club. I don't know who those people are. And they were like, you don't know what you're talking about. This club is wonderful with lots of very attractive and very polite naked people. So it's got really big fans, guys. Love Murder recommends. I got to say, I give it two two thumbs up. Go. (laughs) Tell us how it is. Send pictures, but like close on pictures, please. Or blur it out. Blur it out. Just like the sexy letters. Eggplant John Diamond. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, wow. What a show. What an episode. In conclusion, I got to bring up our oldie. Just get a divorce because Michelle could have been flinging her thing all over North Carolina, Florida, the Caribbean. 
Yeah. She could have had a beautiful life if she had just divorced Marty and lived her truth. This didn't need to happen the way it happened. It did not. And you know what? Also, like, pro tip, maybe don't get laser treatment before you get your mug shots, no. especially in 2001 when they were still, like, figuring it out, working out the kinks. Clearly, clearly still figuring it out when you guys see this shot. Oh, man. Oh, man. Yeah. I, I think if she had known she was going to get arrested, maybe she'd made different choices. And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love and police work, actually. So no one gets murdered. Bye. I love you guys. Bye. Thanks for listening.